What is going on, everyone? We're back with the I've Heard It Both Ways podcast. Andrew Badaferano joined by Justin Palinick, as always. Uh, it's kind of funny since the last time we uh, had our last episode, the Dodgers kind of went on a little bit of a tailspin. I feel like we were a little bit of a jinx. What do you What do you think, Justin? Yeah, that was kind of funny because it actually happened. It was happening in the midst of the second episode that we dropped, which was kind of awkward because we recorded it actually two weekends before. And the Dodgers, I think at that point, had lost something like seven or eight straight. And we were singing their praises right in the middle of it. I think it's a case study, obviously, against the backdrop of the Indians, of course, in baseball, where, you know, obviously weird things happen and it doesn't it doesn't really mean anything. I mean, they're still probably the best team in baseball or, you know, top three for sure. I mean, and even now you look at it, I think they've won three out of four or something like that. So we're recording this on um, Monday, September 18th. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it was just really interesting. And obviously people naturally drew comparisons between the two streaks, one bad, one good. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I mean, one of the bigger things that was kind of being discussed, it was kind of the Diamondbacks making this run. And especially since they played the Dodgers, and I think they swept them in that series, and J.D. Martinez had four homers in that one game. Can we just actually talk about how J.D. Martinez is just giving himself this huge contract or setting himself for this huge contract coming up for himself? Like, what a a streak he's been on. Doesn't he have around 38 homers or 39, something like that, in an abbreviated season? Yeah, I think he's getting on 40 now. And, uh, I mean, the Diamondbacks only picked him up close to the trade deadline, so he's been a huge get for them. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, I don't know if you read that article on Fangraphs by Travis Sawchick where Mm -hmm. he interviewed Martinez about his uppercut swing and all that kind of stuff. Because it was really, really funny. He like used an insane amount of prof- profanity, and huh. you know, it was. I mean, I swear a lot, but it was. He was like a sailor. It was hilarious, and he was talking about, you know, f this, f that. All these coaches telling him not to swing up on the ball, and you're always taught in little league, like Willie Mays Hayes, where you know, if you hit the ball up in the air, that's a bad thing. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, that approach. He is like the epitome of the fly ball revolution in baseball and if it is a juice ball theory then it's certainly benefited him i mean he's been a pretty good hitter i've seen him a lot because he's played in the cleveland indians division for the past few years with the tigers um and they really maximized him there uh in kind of a pitcher's park there and i mean he hit a lot of dingers there and he's a tough hitter he's a tough out he doesn't walk a lot but he definitely gets the bat on the ball and when he does it goes seems like he's really transformed himself over the last couple of years or so. I, he came up with the Astros and really didn't didn't really stand out to me all that much. And, you know, he goes to the Tigers, and since then he's really just become one of the better power hitters in the league, and especially this year, obviously, uh, you know, standing out. He does have 40 home runs, by the way. He finally got to 40 the other day. So, yeah, I mean, he's been a huge part in the Diamondbacks lineup and their resurgence this year, especially in the second half, as they look kind of poised to take the, the one of the wild card spots uh, setting up for maybe a, an all NL West showdown with them and the uh, Rockies so uh, you know 
they could uh, they could be the obstacle for Rocktober. You gotta get through September to get to Rocktober. That's exactly right. We had to get that one in there at least once on the podcast. You knew it was coming. It had, It'll it happen, happen again multiple times. We we need to do an all Rockies podcast so we can make references to Rocktober <laughs> repeatedly. And also, I'd like to point out that. Um, in the long-running debate that no one was keeping track of, of Andrew and my perhaps our only argument on this podcast back way back when we were talking about the Diamondbacks and Rockies. Yes. And Andrew posited that the Diamondbacks would finish better than the Rockies. It looks like he has a handsome lead on your boy over here right now. There's a shot in the dark. It's all about pitching, and I did not expect them to get J.D. Martinez and him to have the second half, but, you know, God bless the Diamondbacks for making me look great. Uh, Those but, snakes, they'll get you. They'll they'll rattle around you and bite you, and when you least expect it. Not that either of oh, us have lived yeah. in Arizona, but uh, yeah. you know, going back to the uh, the tale of two streaks. Let's go to the positive one. Uh, Justin's pretty thrilled to see the Indians set this twenty-two game winning streak. Which you know, I guess for a lot of people that don't follow the Indians closely, uh, it might have seemed like it came out of nowhere especially since the first half of the year, they weren't playing maybe up to expectations. Not that they were playing poorly, but they didn't really stand out in the central and they were letting the twins kind of, you know, hang in there a little bit. But, you know, this has been this, this run that they've went on, you know, since the, uh, I guess it was the end of July, early August, where they just, all the pieces started to click. Edwin Encarnacion started hitting. Jose Ramirez is just, you know, on another level right now and just all of the pieces started to click and it all culminated in this insane streak justin just you know what was going through your head as you were watching this team win in you know nine in and night out it was difficult because it really didn't dawn on me until about game 17 that something unprecedented could be happening uh because last year they went on a 14 game winning streak and when that happened Obviously, everyone was kind of like, okay, well, this was really cool, and I'll never see that happen again. And then they come out this year, and everybody was watching. At 15, it was kind of, for Indians fans, it was a wake-up call, because we had expected this throughout the entire season. And the Indians, to their, I don't want to say credit, but at the beginning of the season, you know, they were around 48 and 45 by mid-July, and people were kind of wondering when are they going to rattle off some kind of streak like this. They had found a lot of creative ways to lose early on in the season, particularly to division opponents. They struggled with the Twins early on, especially. Uh, and, you know, by the All-Star break, everyone was really wondering when they were going to pull away. It seemed inevitable, and they really started to when they went on a mini like eight to nine game win streak with and the Royals were kind of keeping pace behind them and the Indians kept winning and winning and then they extended the lead in the division and right when they hit 69 and 56 is when the streak started and now look you know they have 93 wins and it's it's just gotten to an obscene level and they just clinched the division on Saturday as well uh this past Saturday uh but in terms of the streak you know I'm not going to really you know harp on it too much because what's said has already been said and you know all i have is a fan's perspective and obviously it's not too diverse of a perspective when your team is winning your team is winning and you just kind of ride it out i'll say it was really fun the one thing that i can provide that i think maybe gets lost to people who don't often watch the indians 
is the fan turnout for these past few games has been amazing. Uh, they've sold out, I think, the last three or four home games, and they have 12 sellouts this year, which is the most since 2001, um, which for Cleveland, you know, as a city that has largely and rightly, rightfully so been seen in a, a negative national spotlight for so long, um, it's really representative of how much the fans care about the team and, you know, to me, it's a little bit incriminating that it took the fans this long, obviously, to start going to games and things like that. But at the same time, it, it it's nothing but fun when you see, you know, 34,000 people going nuts as Francisco Lindor ties the game in the bottom of the ninth on Thursday night with a crazy double off Kelvin Herrera. Um, and I know we were both watching that play, mm-hmm. Andrew, and... Honestly, when Lindor came to the plate and they had pinch run Gonzalez over at first base for Mejia, I just knew that he was going to come through. He's just the kind of player that you always know is going to come through. I mean, it's difficult to say after the World Series he had, but I mean, he did play really well in that series. There were just a couple moments where he came up short. And, you know, this kind of showed this time around that he learned from his mistakes and he didn't try to do too much, which he did in the World Series. He swung at a lot of first pitches. And this time around, he did take a hefty hack at, I think, the third pitch in the at-bat, a fastball outside, and you kind of saw him nod his head after. And the very next pitch, you know, he takes it low, a low and away, 97-mile-an-hour heater, one of the most impossible pitches to hit in the game. You know, laces it off the wall and left. And, you know, there, there's a lot to be said about this. Grant Brisby wrote a great article for SB Nation about how lucky the whole situation was, you know, whether the ball could have been a millimeter lower and he pops it, uh, or grounds it out a millimeter higher, he pops it up or the fact that Alex Gordon just hasn't looked like himself in all of 2017. And if it's two years ago, Alex Gordon, he makes that play. I mean, whatever you're going to say, it's true. When, when you have a 22 game winning streak, luck is obviously mm-hmm. involved. So, I mean, that's just the way it went for them, this whole stretch. And they're just, the one thing that I I can also say, I guess it's the second thing, is that I've never seen a clubhouse in baseball this loose. I mean, obviously in baseball, all clubhouses are loose because you're playing 162 games. Everybody, whether you're losing, winning, you know, but there are certain clubhouses that are more on edge than others. And the Indians always have these running gag jokes and the entire team is involved. They've been doing like the mini baseballs this year where they take dugout items and create little (laughs) caricatures of themselves, which is really cool. I think that the camaraderie aspect of baseball is, it's obviously difficult to measure, but it also can't be understated. And in this scenario, I think it did have a measurable impact on them winning this much. Yeah, it was interesting to watch a lot of these games toward the end of the streak where you saw this huge crowd at the game and it was definitely, you know, it looked like a playoff crowd. It looked like maybe even the World Series where this place was packed. And it's funny, you look at it maybe, you know, four or five years ago where Chris Perez, the former Indians closer, was calling them out for, you know, not showing up to the games where, you know, they were And rightfully so. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just funny to see the change. I mean, it's been five years or so since then. And, you know, people have really rallied around this. And I think that's an interesting point, especially now it's fall and even though the Browns are generally awful, uh, it, people in like yourself in Cleveland they care about football. And I, I would you characterize it as a football town? Oh, for sure. Yeah, Cleveland rides and dies by the Browns, which is truly unfortunate. Yeah. So I mean, you know, going into now where it's football season, you know, we're in 
for a couple weeks in and people are still caring about the Indians, that's a huge thing. Yeah, I think the comparable point for the Indians is are the mid-90s teams, which yes. absolutely dominated. That was partial. Uh, there's, I think they sold out every game for like four or five consecutive seasons, obviously a club record during the mid-90s. You know, they won five straight division titles from 95 to 99. People forget how good those teams were. I know MLB just did a documentary about the 95 team and how great it was. Um, And obviously lack of pitching ended up dooming them against the Braves. But that lineup was, it was obscene. You know, I had Albert Mm -hmm. Bell, Jim Tomei, Manny Ramirez, Sandy Alomar, all of whom were perennial all-stars. Uh you know, they were so good and people really loved watching them. And at, at that point, you know, the Browns were leaving town or about to leave town. Uh, and so there was kind of a dark spot in Cleveland and that void was filled by the Indians because they were so good. Cleveland instantly became a baseball town then. And then the franchise really kind of went through a lull in the early 2000s. Um, there were a lot of, you know, dark seasons there uh, after 2001, which was there. Um, only postseason appearance until 2007, I believe. Um, you know, so th- the franchise has really kind of gone through some weird growing pains. And then you get to now where everything is so stable and they have not only a great lineup and a great rotation and a great bullpen, but one through 40, they probably have the best roster in baseball right now. They could plug and play almost anybody on that 40 man roster and get. Uh, the intended result, uh, which obviously carries some benefit into October. But really, I'm more thinking, you know, for the future, uh, you know, continuing the streak of winning the AL Central, especially in a weak AL Central, as the Tigers and Royals seem to uh, begin their your, their rebuilds and their, their teardowns. Yeah, I think this is now the advantage, uh, you know, the Indians have. They're kind of, you know, not I don't know if they're at their peak, but they have a really good team that they're building around. And like you said, the Royals and Tigers are kind of in this limbo where they're rebuilding, but, you know, they're not quite there yet. And the Twins are just, you know, kind of hanging around. And, I mean, they might make the wild card this year, but I, I don't think they're a legitimate challenge for the Central next year, maybe the year after. But... Uh, I guess going back to the streak itself, if you're a fan of semantics, this is definitely one that you can talk about for days. So the issue that uh, a lot of people have been arguing over, I guess, since the uh, the Indians at least got to 20 games, was, you know, who has the legitimate streak? And so Major League Baseball officially says that the Giants in 1916 had a 26-game winning streak, which by Elias Sports Bureau is the record. However, yeah. in the middle of that, streak which happened to be during a 31 game homestand which is i don't know how that i don't know who made the schedule back then someone in their basement i i I know they definitely had uh you know it's more of a primitive way of doing it steve harvey for sure it might have been steve harvey it could have been with you know he's still the mustache was a little smaller but in the middle of that streak there was a game that was played i forget how many innings it was how many innings they got through but it started to rain during the middle of the game and the game did not count toward the standings but however that's where that lack of technology really ends up helping you you know but however the statistics from that that game the players who played in that game all those stats that whatever they did in that game counted toward their final statistics of the year but the game itself did not count at, like at all toward the final standings of the year the giants end up playing more games and end up extending the streak to 26 so some people say that 
that game that they played, they technically didn't win it, should end the streak right there. But, you know, there are other people say, no, we got to follow it by the book where, you know, Major League Baseball says it's 26 games. We should follow it that way. Um, you know, I'm not really sure where I kind of lean on this just for the fact that I've kind of gone back and forth on it because I don't know if you can fault the Giants in this case because A, it rained, can't really control that, and B, it was a stupid rule, but they were just playing by the rules at the time. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of weird that you could have a game that counts but doesn't count in the middle of it and then extend this streak. It's kind of, someone brought up a point, it's like, you know, if you're in the middle of a 55-game hitting streak and you come up three times and you get hit by a pitch walk and you had a sack fly, you're 0 for 0, so technically the hitting streak continues to the next day if you get a hit. But you had a game in there where you didn't get a hit, so it's just kind of this weird semantic argument that uh, you know you can have over and it's an interesting debate that's what makes baseball fun yeah uh, I totally agree Uh, let me just go back to the hitting streak thing I didn't know that if that happened and you got a sack fly walk 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 and you just didn't have a plate appearance that that would continue the streak I thought that you had to interesting all right well that's good to know there was an there was an instance where this happened I don't know how long ago it was but I remember it happening to Derek Jeter and he was in the middle of a hitting streak, and I don't know how long it was, but it was enough where it got some attention on the radio and on TV, where he came up as a pinch hitter in a game that he wasn't starting, which seems weird if he's in the middle of a hitting streak, but I guess the Yankees yeah. to win. Joe Torrey just wanted to screw him. Yeah, exactly. He comes up in that game, and I'm pretty sure he got hit by a pitch, and people were mad at first, but then they realized, oh, it's not a plate appearance. He can continue the hitting streak the next time he uh, he plays. So, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting little uh, thing that you might not think of right away. Would have been funny to see Joe Torre get burned at the stake by the New York media for that, though. Oh yeah, if he, especially if he like grounded out or yeah. Something. But anyways, back to the Giants' streak. Uh, I mean, I'm obviously biased, so I think you know, especially in the modern age, 22 games is pretty. It's unprecedented, you know. It's um, I, I think baseball is going to say that the Indians have the modern day record, quote yeah, unquote, for sure. which is a good way. I think it's a good compromise because, uh, like you said. You know, the best part of baseball and the rom- most romantic part of baseball is its history. And that's why we're both drawn to it. Um, and to have a team, you know, live in infamy for a 26-game win streak, you know, regardless of whether it was part of a 31-game homestand or not, it's and that's an accomplishment. I mean, you know, they, they did it. It wasn't like the Stone Age. It wasn't 1863 with <laughs> Old Hoss Radborn and, like, 14-inning hey. games. It was... I mean, it was definitely, you know, during the live ball era. And, you know, I think, you know, that should stand for something and they should live on in in history. And, you know, to their credit, I think the Indians have done a good job of walking that tightrope with, you know, their official stance on the matter and making sure that they don't, you know, step on any toes. But, you know, it's easy to say 100 years later that this team 100 years ago just doesn't matter and that this new streak is the streak. But I think the best part of baseball is appreciating the history and understanding that, you know, the Indians accomplished something great. There could be something greater and we could debate it forever. I think that's a a very cool thing that we can do. But as an aside, why do we still call the New York Giants the New York football Giants in the NFL? Because the New York baseball Giants haven't been around for 60 years. So this is something that just boggles my mind when, like, the Giants of football are playing on television 
and some announcer will come on and he'll say, and here we are telecasting today, the Dallas Cowboys and the New York football Giants. Like, how <laughs> dumb is that? It doesn't make any sense to me. They're very clearly the only New York Giants left. Exactly. I'll give you two words. Chris Berman, he was the one who always said it, and I'm pretty sure he's like just embedded it in the American lexicon of sports. And Thank you know, God, he's just in, gone. maybe once he fades from prominence, we will not hear New York football giants because, like you said, it is absolutely pointless. But you know, going back to the the streak, if anything, you can take solace in that the Indians have the American League record. There's no disputing that you surpassed the A's with the 20 games by two. So I think that's uh, you know an accomplishment yeah. in itself, especially since you know that team got a movie about them. Now will the Cleveland yeah. Indians? Uh, I mean, they already have Major League One, Two, and back to the minors. So I don't know if they really need <laughs> another true. movie. You tell me who the real winner is. I don't know. We get Billy Bean in Moneyball or Pedro Serrano. I would take the Major League team any day, honestly. Yeah, I the think. team was pretty loaded. They had everything. I think Wild Thing could strike. If you out look back at the, if you look back at the 2001 A's, actually that roster was not very good. They scored like 860 some runs, which was absurd. But it's also in the midst of the steroid era, so it wasn't yeah. too impressive. And honestly, I remember. Actually, this is interesting because looking, remember they had the big three, so they had Mulder, Zito, yeah. and Hudson. Yeah, and obviously they were the gold standard for pitching then. If you compare them, not just to like this year's Indians team, but also to like those mid '90s Braves rotations, or even the the Phillies rotations in the late 2000s, um, they don't—they're not as impressive as I remembered them being. You know, Zito had a had, was like 21 and three, but yeah. his ERA was pretty pedestrian. It was like 3.4. The same for like Mulder and Hudson were good. They were like sinker ballers, they, but they didn't like rack up insane strikeouts or like pace the league in ERA or anything like that. It was just a little bit shocking because, you know, in my memory, I, I had them up there with best rotations of all time. I think a lot of that has to do, like you said, with the steroid era and just, you know, numbers were inflated around the league, you know, pitching wise. I, I was actually looking at it too, not too long ago too, and it was interesting. I felt the same way. I just remember these guys, you know, being talked about that they were, you know, dominating the American League and you look at it and it's like, huh, they were okay. They were pretty good. Uh, you know, they were, you know, standing out, you know, they weren't having, you know, Clayton Kershaw type years. They were having pretty good years, but I mean, those were good teams overall. And, uh, I mean, they were fun to watch and fun to yeah. talk about and they, uh, are not discussed in Moneyball at all. So yeah. let's just gloss over the fact that they had three really good pitchers. Yeah. I mean, their lineup, I mean, I will give Billy Bean credit for making do without Johnny Damon and Jason Giambi and having the emergence of. Eric Chavez and Miguel Tejada, which is very cool. Yeah. Um, so credit to Billy Bean. Um, there was also a cool interview done by The Athletic in San Francisco um, with Billy Bean about what he thought about the Indian streak. And it was interesting. I was surprised that he just came right out and said that this Indians team was much better than that ace team, um, which, I mean, the stats bear that out. Obviously, the Indians were demolishing teams during this stretch, and the A's you know, had some really tight games there on the road to 20. I think they walked off three of the last four. And obviously that last game was nuts because yeah, they gave the up Royals. a 10-run lead. Yeah. Yes. Mike Sweeney obviously crushing the souls and dreams of everyone. Yeah. He used to drill the Indians. He was a good player for a while. Yeah, he was he Underrated. was an AL Central fiend. Um, but going back to pitching, uh, 
this is something we can banter about, Andrew. Uh, I'm not sure where you fall on this, but there's been a lot of noise lately about Corey Kluber overtaking Chris Sale for the AL Cy Young lead, um, a lead that Chris Sale has maintained for, I would argue, the entire season, end-to-end. He's been the best pitcher in baseball almost, um, especially with the injuries to Kershaw and Scherzer and the NL, and, and Kluber, who started off the season with back issues and really struggled through April. Um, but Kluber... I mean, he's had the moments, like the Cy Young moments that everyone kind of looks for in the voting process. He's gone 22 straight scoreless innings over his past three starts. He's been, you know, nearly unhittable, and I watch him all the time, and it's just a it's a joy because he's such a cerebral pitcher, and it, it, it kind of differs from Sale's style, which is so, it's so herky-jerky yeah. and alarming to watch Chris Sale pitch, you know? So I'm curious, what do you think of the debate? Do you think it's warranted? Do you think there's a clear favorite, or is it actually a super tight race as, as it seems right now? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely one you can discuss and kind of make po- points for for both ways. I'm leaning more towards the Kluber way, and I was last year too. Uh, just for the fact, you look at his numbers, they're just incredible. He's got 17 wins. First off, I mean, you know, I know that's not the most important thing, but for voters, it usually is. A lot of people will vote that way. He's getting close to 200 innings. His FIP and his ERA are both very close, and they're both very good. Under 3, 235, and 249 for ERA and FIP, respectively. He has, he's getting up close to 260 strikeouts. He's at 252 as of our recording today. And like you said, you know, just watching him pitch, he seems to step up in these big games and... You know, he's just a joy to watch. Uh, like you said, herky-jerky is probably the best way to describe Chris Sale. You watch him pitch and you think he's going to blow out his elbow every time, which is like just the perfect ju- juxtaposition to Kluber, who has this, you know, kind of this fluid motion where he's, you know, bearing down on these hitters. And that two-seamer is just incredible. It just keeps hitters off balance. And like you said, I think part of the issue here that maybe this isn't being discussed more as he didn't have a great start to the year and Sale got off to this insane start where he was striking out. It seemed like everyone he was facing. But now I think it's kind of uh, evened out and the playing field has become so close where I could see it going either way. But when you factor in the stats along with you know what the Indians have done and what he's meant to this run, I don't think you can discount that. And I think uh, Kluber should get the award if he maintains this pace over the last you know couple weeks or so. So I'm going to bring up something that I think is really going to come into play here, and that's the 300 strikeout mark. So Kluber will, won't will hit the 300 strikeout yeah. mark. He's at 252 right now, and it would take a Herculean effort to get there by the end of the year. However, Chris Sale is uh, swiftly approaching it. Um, and I think in the minds of voters... So let me just confirm here. So Chris Sale has, at the time of this recording, 287 strikeouts. So in theory, he could hit the 300 strikeout mark next his next start, um, and knowing him, it's plausible. Um, I think there's going to be recency bias when it comes to the voters, and they're going to look at the 300 strikeouts before they look at the streak and what Kluber did during the streak and what he's done since May, essentially. And I think by the end of the season, once the... Once the dust settles, I think voters are going to take the 300 strikeouts more seriously than Kluber's accomplishments um, over the past two months and then also for the season. Um, that's my big concern. I, I agree with you. So Kluber, I think in my mind, should have won last year. If not Kluber, Verlander 
Either way, anyone but Rick Porcello, really. I really don't give Rick a shit. Rick Porcello's really come down to earth this year, hasn't he? Oh, my God. That guy's so bad at pitching. It's unbelievable. I, I just, like, uh, did, did we discuss the obscenities that we all yelled when he won the Cy Young last year? I think Kate Upton just said it best. We'll just leave it at that. That was the best. She, she trolled it so hard. That was great. That really was awesome. That was pretty great, I'll be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I um, get, but I mean, you go to speaking of awards. I mean, Kluber's not going to be the only one in the discussion, and you know, Lindor probably will get some votes for Silver Slugger MVP, but he's maybe not even the best hitter on the team. Jose Ramirez has just had this incredible year, especially for a guy who I, I'm going to guess for people outside Cleveland probably never even heard of until last season. Uh, just a guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, Jose Ramirez was a very mercurial player in Cleveland. Not just, I mean, last season he was fantastic, but two years ago he really, really struggled, and he did not endear himself to fans that year. And Terry Francona's usage of him did not endear Terry Francona to fans that year. He <laughs> did not hit well at all. Um, and then last year he obviously broke out, and he hit very well. I believe he had 11 home runs, 76 RBI, and he hit over 300. And it just seemed like last year was a case of a guy who got hot every time someone was on base. I mean, he was the go-to guy on the team for driving in runs, and he was a huge part of their success in that way. I think his average with runners in scoring position was uh, second or third in the league last year, if not first in the AL. Um, this year, he's just a complete stud. He's absolutely amazing. Uh, one thing that strikes me that viewers may not get from just watching games occasionally is how great of a base runner Jose Ramirez is. Uh, that came through in the last game of the streak, game number 22, um, where he legged out a double, um, I believe, in the late innings. Uh, it, it was on Lo uh, Lorenzo Kane cut it off in right center field, and it really shouldn't have been a double. And Lorenzo Kane actually made a great throw, but the, you know those little instincts that really good baseball players have where they know how to cut the base the right way at first and they know exactly how to slide into second base. The Indians as a team do those things really well, but I think Ramirez as an individual is emblematic of everything that the team stands for in that way. He's really, really good at those small aspects of the game that really, really end up mattering. Um and, I mean, obviously, you look at his statistics, they speak for themselves. He's got 5.7 war this year by fan graphs. Uh, he's slashing 314, 367, 576. He'll probably eclipse the 30 home run mark with Lindor. Um, he scored 98 runs, so obviously he's been a major cog in the Indian success. And I'm really curious, actually, where Terry Francona will bat him in the order come postseason time, whether... He'll bat second or third, because I believe the way it's lined up right now, Lindor will lead off because he's hitting well above 300 in that spot. Um, it actually kind of correlated almost perfectly with the streak starting, um, was Lindor taking on the leadoff role. Something he hasn't really done before, but something he's very you know, well-equipped to do as a high OBP kind of speedster shortstop guy. Um, but I'm curious where Jose Ramirez will bat. But to go back to the original point, I don't think that he's going to win the MVP. I think Altuve's kind of got it in hand, and he has for the past two months, which is a testament to Jose Altuve, um, another undersized um, player who gets 
insane results. But there's, I mean, Jose Ramirez is is putting on a display that I personally haven't seen in Cleveland, particularly um, of someone of his stature as an undrafted free agent. You know, he was signed at age 17, and there are a lot of stories about how when the Indians discovered him, they obviously took a flyer on him. Every undrafted free agent, you know, when you're signed that young is, is a flyer. But particularly for him, you know, as someone who's maybe 5'8", maybe 5'9", if you're generous, a really bow-legged looking dude. He kind of looks like a penguin when he's running around yes, the bases, which is really funny. Um, and he's just like it's really fun to watch him play because he kind of looks like a regular dude and you feel like you could match up with him, but he's so special in so many different aspects of the game. And, you know, the Indians, they won't lie and say that they knew what they had in him, but he just took so many giant leaps in the player development system, which is a theme we'll touch on in a little bit more too. Yeah. Especially this year. I don't think you can undersell his performance, especially with Jason Kipnis being, you know, on and off the disabled list for most of the season. And Michael Brantley being hurt, it seems like he's always been hurt the last, you know, couple of years or so. So having him step up in that lineup and, you know, be able to play second and third base really can't just be, you can't, like, I don't, I don't know how you measure that. That's an, an important part of this team. And he's really been a, a key cog in this lineup with him and Lindor. It's just, uh, you know, an, a fun thing to watch. And like you said, especially him running the bases, he does kind of look like a penguin. He kind of like waddles out there. But like you said, that play where Lorenzo Cain fields the ball in center field and he legs out the double, you see Ramirez just not hesitate, goes right for second. And that's a, it's funny because that's a play that Lorenzo Cain would make on the bases. I always think back to that play in the ALCS in 2015 where he went first to home on a single. And I'm not going to put that double up there with like the magnitude of that play because that was a series-clinching game, and I think that was the winning run. But that was a big play in this streak, and it's just kind of emblematic of, you know, you've brought this up time and time again to me about, you know, how well the Indians run the bases. And I don't know where they rank among teams with their, you know, base running instincts or, you know, how well they cut the corners, but they seem to make the right decisions time and time again. And I'm sure that's led to more wins and more runs, which, uh, you know, is obviously a good thing. Yeah, it is. I mean, I wrote about it shameless plug last year you know in the postseason they ran the bases really well and it was obvious during multiple cases in the ALCS against the Blue Jays and a little bit in the World Series but it was a little bit nullified there and base running is one of those things where on occasion it won't matter but when certain situations pop up in the most dire dire scenarios um, it can matter and that's where those instincts really come into play so yeah, Ramirez is really, you know, kind of kind of that guy that you look at as the representative for the Terry Francona era in Cleveland, I think, so far. Um, if you can attribute, you know, one guy to that. I, you can make the case for Andrew Miller, too, and a, a few other guys. He's such a great manager in so many different ways, and it is difficult because managers in baseball are very limited in their impact on the game, their actual impact. But I actually do think Terry Francona, not just with his clubhouse presence, he's a great leader, but also with his bullpen usage, you know, the way he utilizes the 40-man roster in September, it's it's just a stark contrast to what we talked about last time with Terry Collins, you know, and I don't want to get back into that because we talked about it ad nauseum, but a lot of managers in baseball 
are very short-sighted. And I think Terry Francona, for being an old-school guy, really, really utilizes information and a wealth of information very, very effectively. Francona could probably win manager of the year every year, pretty much. Uh, this year, I think it'll be a little tougher just because, uh, you know, you've got himself and there's a couple other different candidates that you could make the argument for. But uh, I would lean towards Francona and I guess just one of those guys that he's been able to find and play effectively. We've talked about this guy many times kind of as a joke, but he's been really good this year. Lonnie Chisenhall oh really God, stepping was... up. <laughs> it's pretty funny because he took a giant leap forward this year. He's like got a 566 slugging percentage or something absurd and every time i think of lonnie chisholm i just think of sarah kirkpatrick sorry not to drag you into this sarah but like (laughs) he's just the most generic baseball player you've ever seen like the from the name to like the face he's just like he could be any man in any town it's just so funny so every time i think of lonnie chisholm i think of sarah kirkpatrick shout out um free press domination i think but that uh, his brother or someone was on Reddit once talking about Lonnie Chisenhall. I think it might have been him. It was definitely someone on the Indians, but it totally would make more sense if it was Lonnie Chisenhall's relative on Reddit talking about Yeah, him. he's just a goofball, too. He's like a really weird dude, which is kind of funny. But um, to get back kind of mildly on track, I just wanted to discuss a little bit something that I've been thinking about writing about, actually, and I think is a really interesting topic. I think I could make the case that the Indians have had the best player development system in baseball over the past decade um, in a variety of ways. Uh, One thing that comes to mind for me is that they never have a top 10 farm system according to any ranking system. For as long as I can remember, you know, I obviously check the farm system rankings very often, whether it be through Baseball Prospectus, Baseball America, MLB.com, Keith Law, As far as I can remember, the Indians haven't had a top 10 farm system in a while. I mean, maybe recently when Lindor was on the brink of coming up. But one thing that they've been able to do is take these guys that have been perennially underrated by pundits and, more importantly, other teams, and turn them into superstars. So we have a variety of, you know, case studies for this, uh, and you can just kind of, like, run through it, but... You know, Corey Kluber at one time was a San Diego Padre, which sounds really weird to say. Um, And the Indians acquired him in 2010, um, basically through Jake Westbrook. So Jake Westbrook was a starter on that 07 team that went to the ALCS and eventually got knocked out by the Red Sox. They traded him in 2010 to the Cardinals, and the Cardinals, you know, dealt uh, Ryan Ludwig to the Padres, and the Indians ended up with Corey Kluber. And all of a sudden, you have a perennial Cy Young candidate. Carlos Carrasco, in a very similar way, in a more high-profile way, was traded You know, in the Cliff Lee trade in 2009. So he was actually the premier prospect in that deal, and he was actually very highly touted at the time. Um, and it took him a little while before he, you know, mastered his craft. And I think the difference for him is it's been well documented is he started exclusively pitching from the stretch, which you see a lot more often now. Um, and it's revolutionized his career. You know, he's probably the best number two starter in baseball, I would argue. And then you have Carlos Santana on, on, on a very low profile trade in 2008. Uh, he was traded for Casey Blake. Uh, so the Indians had Casey Blake. 
uh, to me, Casey Blake is more of a running joke for Indians fans than Lonnie Chisholm. Like, if you can, if you think Lonnie Chisholm is generic, Casey Blake is not only generic in his looks and his name, but also in his entire career arc. I think he never had more than twenty-five home runs, never had more than eighty-five RBIs, but like he never had lower than fifteen home runs and never lower than seventy RBIs. It was actually astounding how mediocre Casey Blake was. He's like the definition of plug and play utility man. Expect, you know, average at best results. It was it is. It's amazing that like someone could last that long in the major leagues being just supremely average, which he completely was. God bless him. But there's always a place for, you know, everyone has a one position they're lacking. So whatever. Everybody has one. Yeah. And then Trevor Bauer, another more high profile one. Well, he was drafted by the Arizona Diamondbacks as a top five selection. Um, And he was traded in 2012 as part of a three team trade. Um, notably Shinsu Chu was sent to the Reds, uh, Tony Sip, if you remember Tony Sip was sent to the D-backs and DD Gregorius Tony was Sip. sent to the, yeah, Tony Sip lefty stud and, uh, DD Gregorius over to the D-backs prior to his stint with the Yankees. So not only did the Indians get Bauer in that deal, they also got Brian Shaw and you look at the team now, Trevor Bauer is second in the AL and wins only behind Corey Kluber. And, um, you know, obviously as we said, a bullshit statistic, but, He's been lights out since the All-Star break. I don't think he's had a start where he's allowed more than three runs until his most recent outing against the Royals. I feel like and the Brian, Diamondbacks have yeah. lost a lot of these three-team trades with their pitchers, if you think about it. Scherzer and Trevor Bauer. I mean, not that Bauer and Scherzer are in the same yeah, conversation. Bauer, but... Yeah, Bauer was a, a, you know very polarizing, and he still is a polarizing figure um, you know, in his personal life and political views, but also in the, his style. But I actually do think, you know, so many think pieces have been written over the past three years about Trevor Bauer somehow unlocking himself. And finally this year, I've actually bought into the hype. And I do think that the changes he's integrated using his breaking ball more often, elevating his fastball, have really, really taken taken form. And he's, you know, changed his career outlook. I actually think he is a very valuable pitcher now. They've basically um, wrote about a whole chapter of him in the the arm, Jeff Passan's book, and about, you know, how he's basically a student of the game and how he really just wants to improve, like you said, the breaking stuff and, you know, try and get even more velocity on his fastball. I think he goes to driveline baseball that, uh, yeah, he performance does. Factory type Under place. the stern guidance of Indians pitching coach Mickey Calloway. Mickey Apparently, Calloway. Mickey Calloway gets reports of like everything he does there to make sure he's not like blowing his arm out. Yeah, because he's throwing like 116 miles an hour with Kyle Body. The, the long toss thing still gets me. It's like so so overplayed now, and I don't know if he still does it, but like it was a big deal. Yeah, the visual of him like throwing across the entire field, and then the other the catcher, the bullpen catcher, having a cutoff man in the middle was just <laughs> hilarious. That is pretty but, funny. Yeah, um, you know, and then you know Michael Brantley in another high-profile trade um, in the CC Sabathia deal to the Brewers, um, and we'll touch on that in a second just for some fun banter. But the, they sent Brantley, you know, the Brewers traded Michael Brantley, Zach Jackson, Matt Laporta back to the Indians for CC Sabathia. Uh, Matt Laporta was a very, very big disappointment. I mean, he was 24 years old when he was traded to the Indians, but he was the top prospect at the time, and he ended up being terrible. So obviously. That's emblematic of this system not being foolproof. But Michael Brantley turned out to be a near MVP candidate just three years ago, and it remains to be seen whether 
his career will have any more longevity to it. He's really ravaged by injuries. But can we throw it back to when CC Sabathia put the Brewers on his back for that second half run in 2008 for the Brewers? It was absolutely nuts. And that was the first time he actually got to hit really in the major leagues. And I remember him hitting a home run at Dodger Stadium or, you know, just really enjoying hitting at the plate. So it seemed like he was doing it all for them. Him and I think that was Ryan Braun's first or second year. So they and were Prince, Prince Fielder had just come up too, I think. Yeah, so they were all still really young. That I Brewers mean, team was really fun. And like CC, remember there was that big debate about whether he could win the Cy Young just for the second half of the season. And he the was end that of, good. He was that yeah, good. I think he was like eleven and two with a one point six ERA or something. I remember him pitching on like three days rest, and he was he was the one who wanted to do it. He wanted to get that team into the postseason, and I mean he did. They beat out the Mets on the last day of the year, and then they got trounced by the Phillies because Sabathia's arm was probably feeling like Jello by that point. Yeah. But, I mean that was a you know that's probably an underrated run there the Brewers going on that crazy ride from probably the trade yeah, deadline cool. to October. I wasn't since, even mad. Yeah, I mean the Indians, I guess after '07, kind of you know were on that downslide. So well, I what mean, was you weird, got Michael Brantley out of it. So what was weird was that Sabathia was not good at all for the Indians that year, and that was why they traded him. He had like a a three point nine five ERA for the Tribe you know, in the first half, and he just wasn't pitching well. And then it was, must have been the change of scenery or whether it was added motivation or chip on his shoulder, whatever. He just got after it. It was nuts. And then he got that monster deal from the Yankees because yeah, of it. Still getting paid. And going back to Cliff Lee, can we just talk about how in the middle of his career he ended up back in the minor leagues? Uh, yeah, so why don't we touch on that really briefly because – the the career arc of Cliff Lee is like really really interesting to me, and you'll find this interesting too, Andrew, because the year that Cliff Lee was in the minors was the year that the Indians were amazing in two thousand seven. Yeah, they were good, and he was terrible. I mean, he started out that year I think with an ERA above seven, and that was one year prior to his Cy Young year where he went twenty two and three with a two and a half ERA. It was absolutely nuts that he made no contribution to that amazing team with C.C. Zabathia and Fausto Carmona leading it. I mean, they could have had the best rotation in baseball, bar none, had he you know, shifted his, um, shifted his momentum just like one year earlier. It was really weird. Yeah, if you think about it, if they had Lee with the artist formerly known as Fausto Carmona, a.k.a. Roberto Hernandez, a.k.a. whatever his real name is, yeah, it's just it's crazy to think that in that run where the Indians were so good that he was so bad. I'm looking at it now. He had a 6-2-9 ERA yeah, in the major leagues that too. year. I mean, his FIP I was a little lower. I can't believe he had 16 five, starts that year. Yeah, I, I remember. It's weird. I remember being in school. We, obviously, we were in junior high. And I remember walking past these two teachers and talk. They had a fantasy baseball team, I guess. And they were talking about Cliff Lee just being so bad. He's like, yeah, I drafted him really high. And he was just awful this year. And I always remember that. It's just like, man, Cliff Lee just became a completely different pitcher after, it I guess he got so, back to the form that he was at pre- previously. So, so weird because that launched like the legend of Cliff Lee. Like after that season, he never had an ERA above four. I mean, he only had one season where it was above three and a half. And he was just, I mean, he was dominant. It wasn't that he was like, oh yeah, he's like changed himself. And he has like a Trevor Bauer fix where he's like, now got an ERA under 3.9. No, no, no. 
he was dominant. I mean, he went 22-3 and three the next year, and he had four complete games. And then the year after that, the Indians traded him to Philadelphia, which obviously netted them Carlos Carrasco. The Cliff Lee thing is really, really interesting. Cliff, I mean, Cliff Lee the Mariner is something I think we all forget about. Cliff Lee the Mariner was fantastic. I mean, he just got, I believe he was injured that year, correct? Uh, I think that year he started off maybe injured or he got injured at some point. But he pitched really well for them and ended up getting traded to the yeah. Rangers for their World Series run. So it seemed like he was always on a you know pennant chasing team because uh, I would two well, years in a row. Yeah, when he was traded for I him. remember the Mariners were on the cover of Sports Illustrated that year because they had Felix and Cliff Lee, and I believe they had a third starter who was supposed to be very good. But I Jared don't remember. Washburn, maybe. No, it definitely was not Jared Washburn. Eric Bedard, possibly. Iwakuma, maybe, or is that pre? I think that's Iwakuma. pre him. I don't know, but they were on the cover of Sports Illustrated because everyone was like, this is the year the Mariners are going to do it. And hey, man, don't don't buy into the Chon Figgins hype. It's actually amazing. There's a joke in How I Met Your Mother about the Mariners never winning the World Series, and yeah. that show is very old, and it is looking like it will stand the test of time, as very few jokes in that show do. Yeah, that's pretty funny, actually. Although, I will say the drunk train is a real thing. I've been on yes. many of them for work. Regale just, us with the tail. There's not just one drunk train. There are multiple drunk trains per line. And it, I would say it probably <laughs> goes from about, you know, 1130 at night when the early stragglers come out to probably about, you know, I've, I've gotten home late, almost five in the morning. People stay out late. They're crazy. And, you know, you hear some weird things going on the train, uh, the drunk train. Uh, don't recommend it unless I guess you're drunk. <laughs> yeah. Sounds advisable if you're inebriated. Yeah. I guess so. I mean, some people have given pretty good advice. I've heard some good stories. Oh, yeah? Have they put, like, the... Did they come over and put the hand around your shoulder and, like, whisper drunkenly in your ear? Like, that kind of thing? No, not to me. They're usually doing that to their drunk pals, and I just overhear it. <laughs> how did we start talking about this? Cliff Lee, Mariners, How I Met Your Mother, Drunk Train. It all, ma- it all makes sense. There's a linear connection. But to I mean, all I, I guess you can say that the Indians' way of doing things was far from inebriated because they seemed, you know, oh actually, they actually seemed to have a plan or <laughs> at least whatever they were doing seemed to work. Yes, I'm glad we've established that the Indians are not Jerry DePoto and they're not just drunk off their asses all the time. And can we just talk about how this year's streak did not need Ricardo Rincon? Or Jonah Hill fist pumping okay. that they got someone. Maybe Jay Bruce was this year's Ricardo Rincon. Okay, first of all, two things. You tweeted about Ricardo Rincon, so you don't have to bring it up on the goddamn podcast. I did tweet about it. Thank you. Second of all, second of all, Paul D. Podesta lives in Cleveland, so there is a good chance that, that he did in fact fist pump in Cleveland. However, the character in the movie is not completely based off Paul D. Podesta, even though it is. No, it no, isn't. no, no. Paul D. Podesta claims that, but the creators of the show differ. Well, so does uh, creators so, of the mo- movie. So, so does Art Howe. Art Howe hates his portrayal in the movie. Art Howe looks like a fat fuck in the in the uh, in the Moneyball movie. Whereas, sorry for the profanity, and also R.I.P. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yes. But also, Art Howe in real life. I saw a picture of him on the sidelines the other day. He's just so skinny. He's so skinny. 
And it was hilarious because there's that scene, obviously, with Hatterberg hitting the walk-off home run. And I noticed that in the Moneyball movie, they never actually show, like, because in that, in that scene, they, like, splice in real game footage, but they never actually show the real Art Howe. And I realized it's because Philip Seymour Hoffman is, like, 5'9", 290, and Art Howe in real life is, like, 6'3", 191. And it's, it's so funny. Sorry, R.I.P. Philip Seymour. It- I would say the two best guys that they had in that movie, Chris Pratt did kind of look like Scott Hatterberg. I'll give him that. I think they did a pretty okay job casting that role. And whoever was playing David Justice kind of gave off a David Justice vibe. He kind of had that, you know, nice leg kick with the batting stance. Yeah, actually, David Justice looked very close to real life. But I remember not being sold on, like you said, the Art Howe and the Ron Washington characters. Yeah, uh, Ron Washington is tough to hit unless you put some cocaine in the movie well who do you have playing terry francona in the indians movie oh that's a good question it has to be someone bald obviously what's funny is i would typically pick brad mills because brad mills is a dead ringer for terry francona brad mills was an actor i could see it (laughs) yeah it's actually funny because they look that similar um who would i choose to be terry francona this is really difficult Maybe Kevin Spacey. I can see like a I little. See, I could see Spacey. Kevin Spacey, like mostly because of the talent. Obviously, like it's difficult to picture him after watching House of Cards for so long. But if you cut out like this, cut out his hair, they look mildly similar. And also, Kevin Spacey's just such a good actor. I could see him doing a Tito impression perfectly. Like when when Spacey puts on the Gaffney accent in House of Cards, it's like you can tell that he could do anything. The thing with Spacey is I feel like he's done just about everything else. If he could do a, you know, a sports movie, I think that just, you know, solidifies his legacy. Yeah, exactly. And if, he could, if he could do Francona, I mean, he can pretty much do anything. So I couldn't imagine him not doing Francona, but that would be pretty cool. I want to see should, that now. Yeah, that would actually be very cool. I wonder if that will actually come to fruition. That'd be pretty, pretty awesome. That would be pretty cool. I want to see that now. Yeah. Um, okay, as like a final aside, uh, just to put a exclamation point on the Indians PD and, you know, where it stands and why it's worked, uh, one model they found lots of success with is leveraging big bets on young talent, really. So they've signed a lot of their young stars of today to long-term deals at a very young age. So Corey Kluber, pre-Cy Young, signed a five-year, $38 million deal, which will carry him through 2021. Andrew, I'd like to hear you go off the top of your head and name maybe three pitchers with the cali- with Kluber's caliber who are paid $38 million in total. So adding up their three contracts? Uh, however you want to do it. I don't know if it's possible. I mean, I think Kluber's maybe like one of the five best pitchers in baseball. Well, I mean, for me, that's kind of easy because I think I can think two of right away just from the Mets to Grom and Syndergaard. They're not getting. But that's paid because that much. they're under team control. Right, that's what I'm saying. I can't think of guys that that are you know. Who, no one. Under my point is, is, you can't think of three. I don't think you. No can. one has signed extensions like that. Uh, no. If you're perennially up for the Cy Young, no one ever signs a contract that only pays them eight million dollars a year. Well, this reminds me of the discussion we had about the Rockies a couple months ago where they need to get these young pitchers under control so they, you know, because they're, they're a tough place to attract free agent pitchers. And the Indians, uh, I mean, maybe that it's Cleveland and the budget is a little bit lower that they have to get these guys 
at a manageable contract early on, and they've done a fantastic job of that, and they're reaping the rewards of it right now and potentially could uh, get to the World Series again this year just because of the way they've handled not only their pitchers, but just uh, like you said before with the whole control of their farm system and how they've made all of these deals. It's a pretty interesting study, like you said, because they've never really stood out in farm system rankings. But then again, you look at all these players that maybe not necessarily that they've drafted, but at the same time, they've developed them in their minor league system after trading them or signing them um, as an undrafted free agent. Yeah, I mean, it's just genius because they are a low-budget team. They'll never compete with the big spenders. They'll never be the Red Sox. They'll never be the Yankees or the Dodgers. They're always going to be in the same tier as the Brewers, the Twins, the Rays, um, all those teams that, you know, you who, you know, don't get, you know, Jacoby Ellsbury for $155 million. It's... Corey Kluber at 5-38, and 38. Jose Ramirez signed an extension this past summer, convenient timing, one might add, for five years <laughs> and $26 million through 2023. So they could potentially have an MVP candidate, candidate through 2023 for $26 million. And Carlos Carrasco, similar to Kluber, believe he signed the year after Kluber did. He signed a four-year deal for $22 million through 2020 with team options. And one thing to note is all of these contracts have team options attached to them, which is also ingenious because it's another way of maintaining team control after arbitration eligibility. Um, Carlos Santana uh, will be a free agent this offseason, but he signed a six-year $31 million contract extension in 2012, which took him through this year. Um, He'll be interesting to see if he comes back. I think I've heard a lot of noise lately about how he wants to return, which is very cool. And then also, obviously, we saw the first baseman market bottom out last summer, or last offseason. So um, I think they could potentially get him back on a pretty decent deal. Uh, I think he's... I mean, Carlos Santana could merit a whole podcast of his own like for a player spotlight. Just like he's had 90-plus walks, I believe, for his last seven seasons, and he's cut down his strikeout rate. Um, to just about uh, equal with his you know, walk rate, which is extremely impressive for a slugger like him. He'll never hit 300, but he always gives you 25 homers, 80 RBI. I mean, he's just a staple in Cleveland, and he came up really late in his career. I think he was 24 or 25 when he got an established starting role. And I think he, he's going to go down in baseball history as someone who is supremely undervalued and you know probably will be forgotten about not to be too morbid about it but like he just i mean he is one of those players who's a really important contributor on winning teams but maybe won't get the recognition he deserves and i think the interesting thing is that they've made all these great moves especially to get younger talent and eventually develop them and they haven't allowed bigger contracts for major league players kind of get in the way. I mean, the two that come to mind, Michael Bourne and Nick Swisher, didn't really end up working out, but that doesn't really hurt the Indians in the long term. So I think they've well, done it did a good go job. under the radar no. that they had Chris Johnson. Chris Johnson was under contract with the Indians until this year for nine million dollars and they'd had to huh. like pay him the full nine mil. So it's better than like the thirty mil they owed Swisher and Bourne, but right. also is you know, they, they did have to eat some costs there, you know, pay their dues for those contracts. But those are really the only two moves, you know, I can think of over the past uh decade where I've been, you know, pretty annoyed and 
you know, you knew kind of from the get go that they wouldn't pan out. Whereas, you know, you move forward and you jump up to 2017, they signed Edwin Encarnacion to a three year, $60 million deal um, with a player option, I believe for the fourth year. I'd have to check up on that. But um, I mean, it's looking like a steal right now. He's doing the same thing he did in Toronto. He's got 36 home runs and, if he continues, even if he declines, you know, say he declines to 24 home runs by his third year, it's like, okay, so you have him in the last year of his contract, you could potentially trade him at the deadline if you're not in competition that year. I don't think it'll end up harming them. So I think that was a genius deal. Obviously, we've, you know, talked about the Jay Bruce deal in the last podcast. Um, you know, he'll be a solid contributor going into the postseason. And, of course, the Andrew Miller deal last year where they traded uh, Clint Frazier and Justice Sheffield over to the Yankees uh, for Andrew Miller is looking like a stellar deal um, on the heels of the best postseason in reliever history. I mean, you can't really, like we keep saying, you can't really undersell these moves that they've made. And whether or not you think that the pieces that they traded for Andrew Miller were a lot, I mean, you can't argue the fact that Andrew Miller has been pretty much fantastic every time he's pitched for the Indians. And although he did hit the DL, which is pretty impressive that they were able to pitch without him with the, I mean, they do have a good bullpen, but they were able to, you know, have the streak without him for the most part, uh, you know, speaks to the depth that they have up and down the rotation, the bullpen and the lineup as a whole. Yeah, I mean, there was a statistic at one point that Giovanni Urshela was the only player on the Indians for roster to started all the games in the streak. Um, I believe it ended like game 19. But like we've been talking about this whole time, that's part of this whole summation of why the Indians are successful is 1 through 40, they have the best team in baseball. There are no weak spots on the roster. I'm confident um, they could bring up Gallen and they could bring up you know, Yandy Diaz and demanding post wouldn't miss a beat, you know, and not that that will happen because they actually have enough talent to, you know, get by without them. Um, and it'll be interesting because there, 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 a lot of arguments right now are happening over who to include on the Indians 25-man roster for the postseason. It's actually, I mean, it's a good problem to have. And not many baseball teams have that issue. You look at the Dodgers, you know, everybody thought that they were invincible and saw some cracks in that armor with these the recent losing streak and you know, teams have identified some weak spots with them, and the Astros have some starting rotation issues, as do the Red Sox. Um, the Cubs have some rotation and bullpen issues, for that matter. You know, all these different teams have lots of holes, and I would say the Indians have no holes. Yeah, that sounds bold and to people who may not have seen them or been following this year outside of the streak. It may sound crazy, but it's true. They really don't. I mean, the bullpen is loaded. The rotation is the best in baseball right now. The lineup produces runs at a pretty alarming rate, and you know they run the bases really well. You tell me what's wrong with the team as it's constructed, and you know it may or may not translate to postseason success. It's been difficult after the streak reconciling what will happen if the Indians lose in the postseason and if they don't win the World Series. And a lot of people are talking about how the streak itself is a monumental accomplishment. Obviously, it's much more difficult to have a streak of that length than to win the World Series. But on the heels of last year, um, given the context of 
you know, losing to the Cubs and blowing a 3-1 lead. Um, I think it would be a disappointment if they didn't, you know, win the World Series. I was going to say make the World Series, but you really have to take it home. You know, you can't lose again. Uh, if they get there, it's difficult to opine about this kind of stuff because baseball is just so unpredictable. I mean, especially the five-game series in the ALDS, it really, really um, throws a wrench into lots of good teams' plans in the postseason. And we've seen wildcard teams go on hot streaks so many times. The Royals, notably. The Giants have done it. I mean, it's just it's part of the game. The postseason is difficult to predict. You can have the best team in baseball, and you can come away with nothing. That's what the 2001 Mariners taught us. Yeah, it's not the Premier League where the best team, you know, gets crowned at the end of the year. This is baseball. Any, it's anyone's game once the postseason is set. And unfortunately for the Indians, a 22-game winning streak doesn't guarantee them a spot in the World Series. They still have to play in the postseason. And there are definitely some tough teams yeah. ahead with the, with the Astros that come to mind. The Red Sox are tough. And who knows about the Yankees, it seems like. They could be a potentially tough matchup if uh, if they make it past the wild card game, and uh, I mean it's definitely not an easy American League to get past to, and it's weird to think about now because two months ago I wouldn't have thought this, but I could I wouldn't be surprised to see a rematch of last year in the World Series. I really wouldn't. Yeah, I mean nothing would surprise me honestly if you threw me any combination, maybe aside from the Twins making the World Series, but. Any combination, really, from this year's postseason wouldn't surprise me. I think, actually, not to beat a dead horse, but I really think that the Rockies could make a run, you know, depending on whether Arenado and Blackman hit and stuff like that. We'll have a whole postseason podcast, so we'll leave it to that. But in terms of the future of the Indians, you know, moving past 2017, we talked about it a little bit. They're well-positioned to basically sweep the AL Central for, I would say, two to three years. It depends on how quickly the Reds, the White Sox rebuild comes to fruition. And, you know, right now it's looking good for them in some ways, mediocre in other respects. Yohan Mankata hasn't been as great as expected, and whereas Lucas Giolito is exceeding expectations. So we'll see, you know, how it turns out for them once all their, their big prospects are up. Um, the Twins don't really scare anyone. Um, you know, they're, like, caught in a difficult spot between a rebuild and then teardown not necessarily a teardown but they just haven't committed fully to anything i don't think and they're also in the midst of a gm transition so it'll be interesting to see but i think you know the indians are they'll be kind of the cream of the crop in the al central for a little while now yeah i feel like the twins are always kind of in between being in contention or being at the basement of the al central and it's been like that the last three years where it's been you know almost competing for the wild card really bad in 2016 and then possibly making the postseason this year and if they somehow like you said if they made the world series this year they would probably be a top three worst team to ever make the world series i would put them with the 73 mets and the 06 Cardinals without a doubt as one of the worst teams to ever make the world series so if the twins do make it <laughs> oh, byron buxton must have yeah. had some insane postseason run and I think he would be an intriguing player to profile at and some point I actually in time. do think we should actually do something on Byron Buxton, maybe like talk to a Twins writer. We can get a hold of them. He's so interesting. I mean, we've talked about him dating back like six years. This isn't yeah. some new conversation. I mean, he's been a top prospect for, it feels like, forever. And that's a standing joke. 
But the dude, I mean, he's he's got like four and a half war this year, and it's obviously on the strength of his defense because it's not as bad. But his bat is finally coming it's around. Imagine up the second half. Yeah, just like uh, a couple years ago. But imagine if he can carry this momentum, um, you know, into next year. I think it'll be really interesting. Maybe he does like revolutionize their team, and maybe they're a serious contender next year. It's possible. One player. It's difficult to say though, because Mike Trout is, you know, a singular player in baseball history already, and look where the Angels are. Competing with the Twins for the wild card. Oh, it comes full circle. There it is. Yeah. Um, well, this was fun. Uh, obviously, I really enjoyed talking about the Indians. Um, I hope it didn't come off as too fangirly. I tried to make it a little objective. Um, Andrew probably more, provided the objectivity. I think it came but, more off as fan graphy. We'll go with that. Hey, I had baseball prospectus war, fan graphs, B war. You had it's it all, all pulled up here. You had it all. Yeah, yeah. This Google Doc is lit. Anyone who's <laughs> interested, I'll share it with you guys. <laughs> it, it is pretty good. He does have a lot of numbers in there, so um, he's not wrong. Exactly. So sounds like the time Andrew and I ride the old drunk train back home into audio silence but um we hope this was some oral pleasure a u r a l (laughs) from the i've heard it both ways podcast um again follow us on itunes uh stitcher soundcloud wherever you get your podcasts um be sure to follow us on twitter at both ways podcast same for facebook um yeah i mean it'd be really cool if you guys followed us and you know interacted it'd be if anybody's interested in writing or um coming on as a guest let us know uh our email is bothwayspodcast at gmail.com which we check not regularly uh but yeah it'd be fun to you know have some you know guest commentary um so let us know um thank you for listening and uh, this has been a production of your boys, Andrew and Justin, of the Both Ways Podcast crew.